There's been a lot of talk recently about politics and comics, and how certain types of readers feel that the two should never meet. The very idea that creative works can exist inside their own bubble without mention or influence of politics is in itself frankly ridiculous. But more than that, to to raise this as a concern in relation to modern comics misses the fact that politics has always played a part in comic books. And maybe it's only now, when political opinions are becoming more and more drastically opposed, that people are starting to notice. But from examples such as Captain America punching Hitler in the face, to the introduction of inclusive characters like Kamala Khan, comics have been fighting for social justice all along. Of course, inclusivity and social justice on the page, within the panels, is one thing. But what about behind the scenes? Well, nowadays comics creators have greater access than ever to their audience, and greater avenues within which to release their work to the masses, be that through indie publishers, crowdfunding, or even hand-printing zines for local cons. It's easier than ever for anyone with a creative mind to bring their unique vision to life. This has allowed for those who've previously been oppressed or marginalised to step forward and be heard, and share their stories and the stories of their friends, their families and their histories that have previously been unheard. As such, the comic landscape is starting to blossom with wonderful diversity and refreshingly original work. My name's Matt Loon. And today on the show, I'm joined by Henry Barajas and Kaylee Hearn to discuss why comics are important to them. This is That's the Issue. Hi, I'm Kaylee Hearn. I'm a writer and critic. I'm also the comic reviews editor at womenwriteaboutcomics.com, which is a wonderful Eisner-nominated website. (laughs) And uh, my writing can also be found uh, on Shelf Dust, the MNT, and Panel by Panel. Hi, my name is Henry Barajas. I am the director of operations at Top Cow Productions. And I am an author. Currently, uh, my book, La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rambo, is being um, uh, published by Top Cow and Image Comics. First, it started off as a Kickstarter, um, just crowdfunding initiative that was just trying to get a bunch of people to get excited about my comic, about my great-grandfather and his political activism, and how he co-founded the Mayo organization that helped... uh, keep the Pascoyaki tribe where they're currently at in uh, southern Arizona and the Sonoran Desert. I've been uh, writing about about comics. Uh, I started off at Comics Beat, thanks to Heidi McDonald. Um, I wrote for Bleeding Cools magazine, uh, Sci-Fi Wire, and uh, I was also a journalist in Tucson, Arizona for the Arizona Daily Star, and then I took a job at the Alternative Weekly, uh, Tucson Weekly, as the online editor there and uh i'm now in los angeles uh working full-time in the comic book industry awesome well thank you both for joining me it's really good to chat to you both we managed yeah, to uh we managed well, to get three time zones together as of, uh, as we were just saying before we started recording <laughs> this is it's a miracle of science uh but you know no, it's great to speak to you both um but um but kaylee i'll start with you congratulations on your recent wedding um thank you how was the big day was it good Oh, it was wonderful. It was uh, absolutely perfect. Mm. No supervillains crashed it. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, I've been led to believe that that happens more often, but I think uh, I think I've been led down the wrong path. I mean, you you write a regular column for Women Write About <clears throat> Comics um, called The Wedding Issue, which looks at like the what is one of the most kind of bizarre traditions in superhero comics, isn't it? Like the the wedding issue. Oh, yes. Um, That's a lot of fun. I co-write that with my uh, very good friend, Rebecca Henley Weiss. Um, I was maid of honor at her wedding and she was matron of honor at my wedding. Ah. So um, we've been writing about uh, superhero weddings for a little over, I think, two years now that covered both of our weddings. So it was very interesting doing like actual real world wedding planning and then ex- kind of exploring what superhero comics thinks weddings are. Mm, yeah, <laughs> which is vastly different, I imagine. 
Yes, it was. It's very interesting going back in some cases, like decades or even a few years ago. Um, for example, the the uh, the Batman and Catwoman wedding that didn't happen that really threw off our schedule. We were very <laughs> we were uh, taken aback by that, but it's just fascinating to see how like marriage as an institution has changed. Uh, now, for example, we can write about uh, same sex marriages. There have fortunately been several that have happened in comics now. And the fashion is fascinating. Uh, it's also very interesting to see like where the couples are today, whether you know uh, a demon has undone it from history or there was a telepathic affair or a clone was involved. Uh, some of these marriages have had very uh, interesting endings. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, the like being married doesn't seem to be like uh favorable in superhero comics really like there's only there's only one real marriage i can think of that lasts which was reed and sue storm Um, yes which was one of the very first in superhero comics yeah and that's i mean is that the only one that's lasted um it's it's very tricky to say when some comics have rebooted for example man and lois lane uh one of the myriad of DC reboots, you know, undid their marriage and Superman was dating Wonder Woman. But then I cannot even begin to describe all the retcons that have happened since then. And now Superman and Lois are married again and have a son. So sometimes it is very tricky. Um, I think are Aquaman and Mara still married? I could not keep track of that either. But they were another couple that actually got married very early um, in their existence, which I think... Um, which is interesting because that was, I think, maybe in the ni- early 1960s when comic book superheroes weren't really considered, you know, IP. Like, oh, we have to keep these characters young. Uh, they can't change. They can't have children. It was just, you know, considered a natural plot development. Like, let's have them get married. Mm. And so you can definitely, in some cases, see the hand of the editor sort of moving things in place in very interesting ways. Yeah. And now weddings, as you said, with like Batman and Catwoman, weddings are being kind of called off before they even begin. Like marriages don't even get a chance to start now because it was within a short space of like a few months where Batman and Catwoman didn't get married. And then Kitty Pride and Colossus didn't get married either, did they? And that was like all in the space of like a few weeks. Right. They didn't. But then Rogue and Gambit did. So thankfully, we did have a wedding to actually cover. (laughs) But that was, yeah, that was a very interesting span of a few weeks. We were like, and both, I think, were spoiled by um, mainstream news before the issues actually hit the press. So it was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, announcing these weddings like as if they're actual weddings, getting real designers to design the wedding dresses, and then they don't even get married. I know, which is such a shame because Catwoman's dress was gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. And that would have been an interesting... I, I think appreciate been... the uh, cosplay. There's yeah. a lot oh my of God. Uh, cosplayers, and they always have so much attention to detail, and they always put a little bit of their own spunk into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yes, I've seen some of those cosplayers, and absolutely gorgeous. To yeah. to have a cosplay of a wedding dress, like a designer fashion wedding dress. I mean, you have to like. I mean, it's going to cost you a bit of money anyway, isn't it? Really. <laughs> Hopefully, they can use it more than once. Yeah. After the big day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you said you're the reviews manager for Women Write About Comics. Um, how did you get involved in in the site to start with? I, I first began working on the site all the way back in 2013. Uh, I met Women Write About Comics founder Megan Purdy um, through uh, LiveJournal, uh, Dream With, that's uh, up through sort of the Scans Daily comic community, if anybody remembers Scans Daily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we knew each other through that, and Megan was, you know, really looking to start a website that would sort of fill that void in comics criticism, comics coverage that was prioritizing, you know, the typical straights is white male um, persona. I was like, well, let's, you know, create a site um, for women and non-binary folks to, you know, really carve that space for ourselves. Mm. Um, And I just kind of, you know, I, I believe she put a clarion call on Twitter back in the day and I knew her and answered 
and somehow stumbled into being the reviews editor, which has um, been an amazing and rewarding experience for all these years. Yeah, yeah. And Henry, you said you started writing under Heidi McDonald. Yeah, I was on Twitter and I worked for a bank. Um, hmm. I'm not going to say the name, Citibank. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it wasn't a rewarding job. But I loved, I made so much money at the time, like not a lot of money, but enough money to buy whatever comic book I wanted. And all the comic books I read about through these, you know, Wizard Magazine, which is very cis male, like top 10 bodies in comics, you know, like really mm. trash kind of comic book. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't call it journalism, but comic book coverage. And I grew up reading that stuff. And I always wanted to write for this magazine. And I always wanted, to, I, I always what I didn't know was I really just wanted to write about comics and I got the uh, opportunity to write with Heidi McDonald and, and cover Kickstarter comics. It's funny because yesterday um, Facebook reminded me like eight years ago, I used to have a column called kick watcher, mm-hmm. which sounds really terrible now. Um, but <laughs> I like that's it. How I started. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. And you've come like, a long way from that like you're now the um the director of operations at top cow um and you say you're currently in the process of moving <laughs> like literally oh. as we speak <laughs> we're just moving uh just some like uh overstock from uh, our warehouse right now i mean nothing too substantial but just requires a lot of manpower which thankfully i have yeah. not much of but enough of uh <laughs> so I yeah, so I got to write about comics through Heidi, and if it wasn't for comics, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to become an actual journalist in Tucson, Arizona, um, without a journalism degree. So I was very grateful for that opportunity because that gave me an opportunity to be in, a, in an actual newsroom and to actually kind of learn journalism law and learn how to be more, um, you know, more investigative and more thought-provoking. And I was able to use that back into comics coverage and try to kind of become a little bit more aware of what I was doing versus because I, what I see a lot of these blogs do is they'll just pretty much take somebody's exclusive and almost copy and paste everything they're doing and switch around some words. And that really bothers me. So that's why that's why I really appreciate women to write about comics. because They don't just do news. They, they have very serious critiques of what's happening in the comic book industry good and bad and being kind of the only voices of really out there having just no f words left to just be like not pleasing to any publisher so thank you so much for everything y'all do oh wow thank you so much for the kind words yeah and i i completely echo that sentiment as well yeah i've had um i've had claire on the show and i've had nola on the show in the past as well and we've talked about women write about comics and the and the place that it has in you know comics journalism and the comics landscape as well um i mean how important is that position for you and you know and how how are you kind of how are you all working together to kind of to keep that momentum going it's it's an interesting sort of I guess cauldron of different writers. Um, we're all like from different countries, different continents, a lot of you know really diverse viewpoints. And um, fortunately, like we've kind of created a nice Slack channel that's sort of this really great hub for different thoughts and working out feelings, like how like you know, what do we think about the comic controversy of the week on Twitter? You know, what can we say to each other to work out how we feel, um, to brainstorm ideas, like to turn it into a piece? Um, You know, what comics are coming out soon that we really want to, for example, in my case, like really give attention to instead of necessarily just, uh, you know, writing about Spider-Man for the eighth millionth time, you know, who try to really see, okay, what's maybe what's not being covered that deserves another look or deserves the spotlight. And, you know, how can we, you know, amplify that? I think it's, um, I mean, this is a great time for that kind of journalism as well, because there are so many comics out there now that are breaking boundaries and they are pushing you know pushing the the envelope when it comes to representation when it comes to the types of stories being told um i mean 
are you you finding that there are you know more voices that need to be heard are you finding that's easier to find people to to interview and to review or are you finding that there it's it's almost getting harder because they're getting lost in a sea of of brand new comics um that's a very interesting question i would say it's gotten easier since i first started as reviews editor um, we've been able to build uh, really great relationships with certain publishers and editors who um, know books we like and are like, hey, we think you might like this. Uh, check it out. And um, social media has really changed the game also in a lot of ways. So in some ways, it's just really easier. You know, if, if a really great, fascinating piece of comic art is suddenly retweeted onto your feed, like, who's this? Like, where did they come from? Where can I find their books? Is there some way we can interview them or promote them? And, you know, thankfully, Women Write About Comics has been able to really build up kind of this brand that a lot of people recognize and trust and want to hear from. And so I think in some ways that's really made it easier to find these new voices. Yeah, yeah. And and Henry, you're you're one of those voices, really, because you're you know you're working hard with with this new book that you've got coming out. This is something that contributes to that conversation with, you know, uh, presenting a story that is underrepresented, that is um, being almost ignored by history. You're bringing it straight back to the forefront. Um, how important was that journey for you to to bring this to you know to print? Um, you know. I've been in the comic book industry for the last decade and going to conventions nine times out of 10, I'm the only brown kid. And I was a kid, now I'm a man. So a lot of the times I'm the only brown man in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Can't call myself a kid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so it was just, you know, like doing this book started in 2015, just as Trump was starting to rally up his bigot machine and just call Mexicans, uh, rapists and murderers and, and thieves and anything you can think of and just seeing the people like me and people that I know and love and uh, become these vilified for everyone to see with no one really to defend them. I can't really, at this moment in time, other than AOC, can't really think of a very mainstream politician that's out there defending people like myself um, other than kind of just using brown people as... Uh, as bargaining chips to get what they want funded through Congress. And so when I was writing this book, it was, I was diving into a history of my life, not only my family's life, but also accomplishments that other people had done, the community at large that had stopped the city of Tucson from displacing 12,000 people, 4,000 homes, one school, Ritchie Elementary that was devoted to these uh, Native Native Americans and Mexican migrants. So my great-grandfather did all these amazing things with all these amazing people, and I kept looking and looking and just finding only one piece of text that had talked about Mayo and Jauvige, but painted them as these uh, outsiders and resist. they were like a resistance to the tribe when they were actually working with the tribe. And, I, it was really important for me to put that out there, but also knowing that my great-grandfather wasn't a perfect man, and I wanted to paint a full-figure person instead of force-feeding everybody this, you know, blameless angel. When yeah, when you look at, in history, you know, you find these political um, figures like Dr. Martin Luther King and Gandhi, and they're not perfect people. They did things that, that people would not appreciate, and you don't find that out until you're much older. And I wanted to be able to be, you know, at coming, taking that journalism side and that love of making comics, putting that together and telling a, a larger story than just making one, you know, making him this like perfect person. Yeah. How difficult was it for you to, to find the right voice for this book? Because obviously you said like, and in the back of the book itself, there's, you show all the research that you did and, and your, you know, your history as an investigative journalist obviously plays a great role in that. But then this is a really personal story for you. Um, you know, what, what, was that like walking a tightrope or were you able to kind of find a good balance between the two? It was rock walking a tightrope in the beginning because my family was very worried about how our family history was going to be presented. And I didn't really think about it that greatly until I had actually had conversations with my family and 
that's when it became um, a little bit more real for me. But I had to think about the other people that made a difference and think about how they were never, ever documented properly and what they had done. So this is dedicated to the, the cause versus my great grandfather, who I'm very lucky to have been able to have spent time with and gathered all this information to be able to, to tell this story that I think should be in the history books, not only for Tucson, but also for the possible Yaku tribe. Absolutely, absolutely. And what, you know, we talked about kind of comic books a little bit, but what made like the graphic novel format be the one, the, the way to tell this story for you? Um, well, it started off as single issues through Kickstarter. So I wanted to be able to have, I, I know that I couldn't have raised twenty to $30,000 that I would need to do a graphic novel for what I was trying to do. So it was uh, easier for me to, to do it in chunks. Mm. And um, I'm very grateful that Top Cow and Matt Hawkins was able to help me pay for Jay Gonzo's art, who Jay Gonzo is um, the artist. And he did everything. He did pencils, inks, and colors. And it was easier to just parse it out in pieces, you know, and instead of giving him one giant load that only one person was taking on at the time. So um, I think I love comic books and I love that you could do so many things with comics. And that is kind of how I think in as in, in real in any way. I always and in, in, at least in storytelling wise. So it wasn't hard for me to figure out it's it's in three chapters, you know, just like beginning, middle, end, and it's a very classic kind of, uh, you know, storytelling method, at least within film. So I'm, I'm really proud of what we did, and I'm really excited to see what everyone else thinks, especially women who write about comics, because I do the press for Top Cow, and they're never, they say what they, what's on their mind, and they don't care if you read it or not, so <laughs> I'm hoping... <laughs> I, I'm I'm really excited, also kind of scared, like if someone's going to kick me in the crotch, you know. Um, yeah. But we'll. I mean, I think that's the the curse of releasing a book that is so personal to you as well, isn't it? You know, it is such a you do you do have to, I imagine, become quite vulnerable to to put something so personal out there. Very. Yeah. I mean, I'm like like a lot of the time, I'm just like, what if this actually sucks? You know. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Like, what if what I'm saying is great, but what I, the, the actual attempt, what if I'm the, like, bad part of all this? You know, that just, it's in the back of my head. I'm very confident of what we're doing, and I've read it so many times that I don't ever want to read it again. So I'm excited to see if anybody cares enough to even give a review, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what do you think, Hayley? Like, the, how do you feel as though... Because as Henry was saying, like women write about comics has got such a such a unique voice and such a distinct voice, and deliberately so. You know, you've gone out of your way to to build a culture and a community that that fills a fills a space in the comics community that wasn't you know wasn't being represented. Um, but like, what's what's it been like for you guys to? You know, to put yourselves out there and to make and to make yourselves known and to and to kind of push push your own. Um, your own voices out there uh, in, as as Henry said, in, in a sea of like kind of clickbaits and exclusives and, and reposts and things like that. It's, I imagine it's quite difficult. Uh, it is. It is. Um, for example, um, I think maybe a couple years ago, Claire had a wonderful one-on-one um, -on -one interview with Chris Claremont where they talked and it was really great, substantial stuff. And then a, another comics website that will not be named kind of took big, huge quotes from it and some of the same images we used and just essentially reposted it. And, you know, that was kind of dehumanizing in a sense of like, well, I'm really proud of this work. And then someone just kind of, you know, does their own little wiki version of it. And how many more hits maybe does that get than our site? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's tough to navigate our position that, you know, we also have to deal with like our uh, first share of like trolls um, and negative comments. That's, you just kind of really have to put a brave face on and push through. But thankfully we really do have that sense of community that like has each other's backs. And, you know, maybe we kind of, 
you know, have some gallows humor behind the scenes, just like, oh, yeah, here we go again. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Another yeah. day being a woman or a non-binary person on Twitter. What fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's why I hired Claire, you know. She didn't care. She doesn't care. She's so fearless. And I, I wanted somebody that could read my script and tell me whether it was good or not. And I, that's when I was, you know, really sitting down thinking about who, who am I going to have edit me and, and be really honest with me. And women who write about comics, I think hands down one of the most honest sites out there, if not the honest. Thank you. Thank you. No, we really take that seriously. Um, we really kind of want to build that almost sense of trust with our audience. Like we're going to tell you what we really think. And we are an all volunteer group of writers and editors. So we just, you know, we do it because we love it because we feel very strongly one way or the other about what we write about. And I think that makes our work just have that sort of extra spice to it, garlic almost, if you will. But, you know, in the sea of like very bland, mushy clickbait or, you know, which Walking Dead actor is leaving next season and or whatever. I, you know, I can't even make up clickbait in my head. I just try to ignore it so badly. <laughs> you know, we really try to um, just really be honest with our readers and just give it to them one way or the other, whether it's a, a positive review or not. That's brilliant. I mean, the you hosted, oh, you uh, moderated a panel at SPX um, recently, Kaylee, about science fiction and social justice. Um, what was that experience like? What can you tell us about that? Uh, that was a really great experience. Uh, I had wonderful panelists like uh, Ezra Clayton Daniels and Carlos Speed McNeil. Um, just uh, very wonderful, fascinating artists whose work is all like, extremely different takes on science fiction. Um, Carla had a wonderful quote that I still think about, which I'm going to badly paraphrase, that uh, mm -hmm. utopia always excludes someone. Right. Which I think was is a very interesting way to think about uh, utopia fiction, especially um, now that sort of the big utopia in comics right now is uh, House of X. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sort of interesting food for thought to see maybe how that is handled. Um, so it was just absolutely fascinating, interesting points of view um, for anybody who's also seen us. Um, the panel is uploaded to YouTube for anybody who's interested on the SBX channel. Um Really fantastic talk. The only awkward part is unfortunately when they uh, went to the audience for questions. <laughs> and uh, as, yeah, as SBX is such a wonderful, inclusive community, um, it was possibly my naivete that I didn't think there would kind of be the stereotypical uh, comic bro person who's like, well, why does science fiction <laughs> have to deal with social justice at all? Isn't it really divisive and... I was just like, uh, uh, you know, there's that great line uh, from Krusty the Clown on The Simpsons where he's like, talk to the audience. Oh, God, this is always death. <laughs> and that was just like running through my head. But the panelists had like such like fantastic answers and really thoughtful. And I really recommend that people check it out on SPX, on the SPX YouTube channel. Just really, it was a, I felt very honored to be the moderator of that panel. I was just like, I'm just going to sit back and let wow. these fantastic people talk. Yeah, it's a it was a daunting level of talent I saw on that when I when I started watching the video I was like oh wow this is this is incredible yeah it's brilliant I mean the, I find that ridiculous that idea that you know why do why do the science fiction have to have politics in it now <laughs> I mean because and that that, that concept of Im imagining that there's not been politics all along in science fiction and the the whole idea of of science fiction having these social justice ideas like the it's it's always been ingrained in the genre and it's always been ingrained in comics to a long a lot of degree as well really hasn't it well yeah from the beginning i mean it's been there since the start also i think it's more palatable for these people because the skin is purple or green it's not brown or black mm. you know so when it it's easier for them to to like kind of you know fantasize that but when it becomes too real for them, it's it's uh you know it's it's harder a harder pill to swallow. And a lot of a lot of these ideas and concepts are explored in 
analogy as well aren't they which is again another way of trying to soften the blow i imagine to try and make it like to try and it's like wrapping a, a pill like trying to feed your dog a tablet but like putting it in in food <laughs> to try and hide it it's just like yeah, yeah we want to teach you this message <laughs> but we have to hide it behind purple skin because otherwise you won't swallow it or uh rod serling just steps out on screen and just tells you what this is going to be about <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Before we start, this is it. Like that, then. This is a metaphor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I love the X Men, and but that's that's kind of it works. I think for the X Men in a lot of ways because you can, you know, a lot of the times it's explicit. A lot of the times it's it pulls directly from um you know various rights battles and 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 you know kind of throughout history the kind of civil rights of of you know various populations. And it always makes it relatable within the X-Men universe as well. Um, so in that kind of idea, like the idea of that being an analogy that can be an all-inclusive analogy, really, isn't it? That that, that the X-Men can cover. Um, but um, but yeah, there's also you know comics out there that are more specific, more more explicit, aren't they, with the with the ideas and with the concepts? Yeah, I mean, I was influenced by John Lewis and and Company's March. I mean, that I was writing the biography because I was a journalist for two years, so I was so so used to going to prose. And when I read March, I was like, "What am I doing? I need to make a comic of this. You know, this is I want to do this, but not. I mean, you know, I didn't have the the gall to think that it was going to be as good, but I wanted to be at least second best. Yeah. I think, and I think that's that's the key, isn't it? Because with with comics and with science fiction, it's it's a medium that's absorbed by the masses, and it's a medium that is is palatable to the masses. But then it can that brings it a certain amount of power, doesn't it? It gives a certain power to to comics, and it gives a certain power to to genres like science fiction, and you know, and horror in a way does it as well. Like this idea of of having messages behind it. Um, is that something that like appeals to you both when it comes to that kind of fiction? Yeah, like I'm not particularly interested in um, very shallow, I guess, for lack of a better word, sort of junk food science fiction that really isn't trying to say anything. Mm. Um, not that it has to be, say, a message film exactly, but you know, I want to know that the creators have some kind of point of view that they aren't just trying to you know, wave a shiny lightsaber in your face and, you know, not have kind of any real weight behind it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm in the same boat. We're kind of at a point where there is so much to watch and so much to listen to and so much to read that you can really dodge and weave shallow entertainment. And we're getting to a point where you really have to be very good to get a lot of people's attention. Do you think we're um, we're we're reaching a, a new golden age of comics in the sense of the idea that people are finding their voice, people are being able to find, you know, uh, characters that look like them, characters that share their culture, um, and also, you know, a lot of memoirs, a lot of autobiographies, as you, you mentioned, John Lewis's March, your book as well, Henry. Um, is this is this like a, a, a new renaissance for this kind of fiction? I would like to think so. I think we're getting to a point where everybody who grew up on the Silver Age comics are in their 50s and 60s, and the people that were writing them are getting have really told all the stories they want to tell. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people like myself that grew up on so many different superhero films and so many different ways. I mean, comics were in their heyday in the 90s. With, with, you know, revolution in the image comics and with uh, just being able to, and, and with manga, you know, there all the all the women and girls that were able to just go to Borders and sit all and read all the manga they wanted. Oh, <laughs> that was me. Cool <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not a library. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, you know, my libraries were all full of manga. Like, there was never any comic books. I had to like yeah. go and beg and, and ask them to get me comics, and uh, I, all my friend, female friends I read just read like Sailor Moon and Fruit Basket and Inuasha and all the 
all the cool manga stuff. And I think that really changed everything. And we're now in the point where all the millennials that are like my age in their 30s or, you know, getting into their 30s are now in a position to kind of do this with crowdfunding platforms like Kickstarter. Unfortunately, Kickstarter has kind of made things a little bit difficult with their uh, union situation. But I'm hoping there's something else that comes out that's comics focused that can really go direct to consumer. And that's where we have to be now. We have to really talk to people directly because it's harder for comic book stores to be able to sustain, sustain economically with everything that's going on in politics and, and with paper right now, you know, Chinese, Japanese printers, and tariffs. And so we really have to get more innovative and be able to tell these stories, not only within our, our storytelling capabilities, but how we actually do this. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the old gates are coming down. Like Kickstarter has um, funded so many comics. Uh, social media, uh, Instagram of all places are really great places where you can put your art out there. And a lot of the young, young artists, you know, they're realizing you don't have to go to the big two if you don't want to. You can own your creations or and you can reach a totally different audience that has, has been overlooked and you can really build your own communities. And even at SPX, you know, zines, physical little hand printed zines have made this really wonderful resurgence. And there's just so many options now that, you know, I would not have imagined when I first started going to comic book shops in the late 90s. Yeah, I mean, I I love zines. I think there's such an energy. It's uh, even just the word zines <laughs> sounds like electric, doesn't it? And like, zines. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I just love that you you go around, and you find so much energy so much creativity so much imagination in people's kind of self-published stuff um that it's just it almost kind of breaks your heart that these these aren't kind of you know wide like why are these not like up there with watchmen and certain just like the idea of just these huge books that are out there that get kind of regurgitated and talked about the same kind of articles covering the same stories over and over again. But like there's, there's so much out there, isn't there? And, and it's great that we're in a position where we get to see more of that. now. It's supposed, it's against all that, you know, it's supposed to be there in the moment and it's supposed to be in front of you when you're that one chance, you get that one chance to get that zine about how somebody had a bad sexual experience. You know, it's, mm. it's beautiful. I love, I, and I'm, I'm really happy that, Places like SPX can host house this kind of uh, kind of punk stuff. And I think that comes back to the idea that there are so many different avenues for people to publish these days. Um, and you know what you were saying, Kaylee, about the idea of there's there's different, even like Instagram and stuff is like is it Becky Cluner at the moment that's doing a, a whole new story purely through Inktober articles? Yes, like Inktober. It's gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing, and that's such a that's such a wonderful way to kind of absorb a new a new story. You know, it's it's like bonkers. That's not something I would have thought would have been existed five years ago, and yet, you know, here we are. This yeah, this podcast has turned into me just like talking about how wonderful the future is, <laughs> <laughs> the miracles of technology. It's like nice to have man. some op- optimism and right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I uh, it's refresh. I've talked about my book a lot, so it's refreshing to talk about other people. <laughs> I mean, I I love this. You know, I, I do love your book though. Um, the Henry, the 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 concept of it is is absolutely amazing. It's such a personal story for you. Um, how has the journey of creating this book, um, you know, how has it affected you? Because it's been a long time coming, hasn't it, for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started in 2015. Um, on the on the first page, the day that my my journey started, it's, it's all there. I mean, it's become it's become this whole journey has helped me become more um, empowered with Latinx stories and people when you only see people that look like you in cages or face down in ditches and, and just seeing, you know, being the villain or being the like invader or the alien, you know, it's just nice to be able to take these voices that were in the dark for so long and bring them out and uh, learn about myself and learn about my family and the city that I come from and I love and being able to, um, I don't know if you ever saw Searching for Sugar Man, but it was like this, it was this Mexican or this brown musician who was just out on the road 
playing music, making music. He was like Bob Dylan's favorite musician. You find these people that are just like behind these big figures. And when you talk about Latinx or Chicano activists, you think of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, but you have, there has to be more, you know? And, and I was just lucky that I was able to uh, ungrave my great grandfather and show something new for a change that's 50 years old. Mm. And you had uh, Jay Gonzo on art as well working with you. Um, yeah, I mean, he's an amazing artist. Uh, yeah. he, he works on a comic called La Mano Destino. It's about a luchador wrestler losing his title and losing his mask and having to rebuild himself and become that champion again. And uh, a lot of people love that. I, I worked with Bernardo Brees. He was the letter on where we lived and uh, the good fight, both comics that benefited mass shooting survivors and the Southern Poverty Law Center. And uh, Claire Napier uh, stepped in, you know, issue one and really helped me ask questions and ask me how can we do this better and how can this be better and how can we do how can we make this comic something that we'll be very proud of and, and i'm very proud of what we did and i'm very grateful that top cow and, and image comics were uh, backed us up and put out the trade paperback and that's out on november 13th is that right yeah, comic book stores will get it November 13th, and bookstores will get it, get it November 19th. Awesome. And I will be uh, at Thought Bubble with the graphic novel practically debuting it there. It's kind of funny bringing it to, like, a different country. And I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what the reception will be like out there because, you know, I don't know if they care about Native or Mexican-American Chicano history, you know? Mm. Oh, that's amazing. I'll, I'll be there, so I'll see you there. <laughs> oh, great. I'll be interested. No, and I think I think lots of people will. I, I think the the issue and and you know part of the reason why you're you know you you've started on this journey is because it's just exposure to that to that history and exposure to stories of that culture. And I think that's something that is you know severely lacking generally. But I think that's you know lacking especially in other countries like like in England. You know, it's not something that we are exposed to as as often or as much as we should be. Um, and so I think, you know, you could you could capture the market. You could be you could be the uh, the, the first. <laughs> the only one. No, yeah. yeah. And I went to Canada for the first time this year. So I'm really excited to be across the pond, as you all say. So. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the comics that you you grew up reading then. Um, Kaylee, what what were some of the books that like kind of defined you as a comic reader when you were growing up? The first comic book that really came to find me as a reader was ElfQuest. I was very fortunate um, growing up that the local comic book places near me in late 90s Virginia were actually co-owned by women. So they were very interested in actually getting girls in the shop, getting them to come back and read books. Um, so um, one of the female owners recommended me ElfQuest when I was still in elementary school. Um, and it's by uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney. And so ElfQuest was really the first comic that told me that there was a place for women in this industry. They could yeah. co-write uh, a series and draw a series and own the series. Like ElfQuest is uh, originally published in 1978 and is a pretty important uh, creator-owned comic. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, so, it sounds like that defined you, that experience. Yeah, it was very formative. Like ElfQuest is just like a great piece of fantasy, first of all, and it was very ahead of its time compared to like other uh, fantasy stories that were being told in the late 70s and early 80s. For example, um, it had uh, elves that had a dark brown skin at a time when fantasy was and still is very light skinned, especially with elven characters. Mm. Um, and it had a, a very large cast of like really well written and beautifully drawn female characters at the time when I was growing up it was sort of there there was the pink ranger maybe and x-men had uh, some female characters but really finding women who were not just the quote-unquote girl of the team was really hard mm. so um elfquest you know had female characters they were healers they were mothers they were villains they were warriors it was just 
really fascinating. And Wendy Heaney uh, was a Red Sonia cosplayer in the 1970s. Wow. And one great fact is that when she uh, drew her own female characters in armor, it was much more realistic. (laughs) Yeah. She pulled from her own photos, I imagine. Uh, She knew what it would be like to walk around in middle bikini, and she's like, uh, probably not. When you're a a female elf (laughs) went into battle against some trolls, you want to want some abdomen abdomen coverage there yeah yeah <laughs> something to cover the shoulders maybe yeah um, vital yeah. Organs, you know. yeah the vital <laughs> organs yeah you know just in case <laughs> i mean that's that's fascinating then because that has that almost you know paints a picture of kind of you know young Kay- kaylee being being defined by these you know uh you know great comic shops by the sounds of things and rare comic shops that had you know female leads and female uh, influences on you in comic shops which so many fans i imagine don't get the chance to to experience at a young age yeah uh, sadly those comic shops are no longer in business but they really were very welcoming especially at a time even before like the manga boom really you know got girls hooked with the more essentially Sailor moon and Peach baskets so I was extremely fortunate. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Henry? What uh, what were the comics that you uh, you read when you were growing up? Well, my so my parents were bargain hunters, and we would sell uh, used uh, furniture and just items on the weekends at a place called the Sanctuary Verde Swapi. And uh, it was just like, you know, so when we would go to yard sales, my parents would come home with a gigantic box of comic books and wizard magazines. And I would just get lost in all these books, Batman and Superman and and, uh, Wonder Woman and the X-Men and and getting just all these obscure image comics that just I should never have been reading at that age. (laughs) Just... Like, uh, I think one of the biggest uh, comics that really, really hit me was Madman by Mike Allred and Laura Allred and uh, edited by Jamie Rich. And it was this Frankenstein looking guy. And I, when I was a kid, I had this very visible, what they called uh, Harry Potter stall, scar, which wasn't cool then. But now it's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, now it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> And um, I was lucky because I got to read all these books and see just uh, that's how I, I I learned how to read. And that's what entertained me the most. And uh, it's just stuck with me. And I was the only kid. I had more comics and textbooks and homework in my backpack. That's all I wanted to read. And my parents would get so frustrated with me. And but I just I mean, it, it paid out, you know, it ended up paying off, I guess. But uh, the, the creators are really really um kind of had a lot lasting effect where maria and david lapham and their work on young liars and uh straight bullets like those books kind of showed me that oh this is this is how i want to make comics just so intricate and and fascinating the characters are flawed but you but you could you were ashamed of being able to um relate to that you know and i think that's that i think those were the best comics are are the best comics of all time yeah and what for you kaylee like the you started with elf quest where did you go from there like how did that you know obviously you you read more comics now um and how did that kind of expand for you outwards like a a lot of other 90s kids the x-men did play a part in my uh, (laughs) my growing up um, like it was the original animated series, and I uh, picked up some of the Jim Lee issues. I had no idea what was going on, but I loved the art. Mm-hmm. And sort of just, you know, kind of thrown in head first, kind of seeing what looked interesting. Um, ElfQuest was also one of the earliest American comics to be manga influenced. So that I sort of was like, oh, I kind of know what this looks like. I kind of know what this is. Yeah. Um, and, um, and going through the back issues and finding the old epic comic colorized versions of Akira that were published in single issues and like wow yeah and um, a friend of mine and I would just like go through the back issues and I'd be like hey I'll, I'll buy this issue you buy this issue and we would swap between us yeah and that was how we originally read Akira um, 
<laughs> very weird to think about these days. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sailor Moon was huge when the Sailor Moon manga was first translated. A very bad translation, but it was translated. <laughs> and then when um, I, I was about to start high school when the first X-Men movie came out, and that reminded me of, oh, I loved this when I was a kid, um, but I didn't really know what was going on, so I'm going to like really jump head first into like um, the old essential X-Men sort of foam books of black and white issues of like the whole entire Chris Claremont run, which is so fantastic. And oh, yeah. Absolutely one of my favorite comic book runs of all time. And you know, that was sort of my baptism into uh, the big two and all that wonderful continuity and craziness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still not having a clue what's going on, really, if you're anything like me. Oh, God. <laughs> like, I can't remember some of my cousin's names, but I can tell you, like, what issue, like, Phoenix died. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I can pluck it out of the air, but I can't remember anything. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's fascinating because you both tell stories that are, like, you know, similar. I've, I have similar memories myself of kind of finding comics coming across comics like scrounging together pennies and cents to to find the extra you know issue that you wanted or swapping with friends and and it's it's bizarre to think that you know nowadays it's all every comic is all automatically available for you isn't it you know readily available and it's it's a shame really because that's you know what you were saying Kaylee, that story of how you kind of found all the issues of akira and that's how you read it by swapping it part of that is you know, part of that is reading the story, but part of that is the the story itself of collecting them and reading them and swapping them, and that's part of the experience, isn't it? Of, of reading that. That's a that's a, a great memory for you, isn't it? I suppose. Oh yeah, definitely. Like the thrill of the hunt was really something back then. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. some ways, I, I you know there is some nostalgia for it, but in other ways, I'm like you know, thank God I didn't <laughs> have to work that hard to find a great book. Yeah, you can just open an app now and find it, which is, you know, a miracle. Again, I'm talking about, <laughs> talking about the miracle no, of the like, future. Like if you could go back in time and find, you know, Kaylee, little Kaylee surround you around those long boxes and show her that gorgeous, like, hardback box set of Akira that's out now, I just oh, would yeah. have, like, died. So <laughs> there, there are good things about being in 2019 <laughs> comics. Yeah. 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 Thank God. Or else we wouldn't be on this podcast or you would have died. <laughs> oh no i'm glad i'm not dead yeah yeah what a, what a great way to end the episode that's, that's a wonderful conclusion what a bombshell <laughs> well um, thank you so much both for joining me I've, i really appreciate you taking the time out um and it's it's been fascinating to you know to get to know you both through the comics that you love it's brilliant oh i am so honored to be on this podcast thank you so much for having me Yes, thank you so much. This is wonderful. That's the Issue is part of the Multiversity Comics podcast network. You can find this show and plenty more at multiversitycomics.com. You can subscribe to the show via Apple, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. The show is on Twitter at That's the Issue, and I'm on there too at Matt Loon. Finally, you can contact the show via email at That's the Issue podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.